I'm Cindy Brown, Vice President for Education Policy here at the Center for American Progress, and I'd like to welcome all of you on behalf of the Center and on behalf of Jobs for the Future, our partners, uh, to what promises to be a very exciting event today. Today we are celebrating the introduction of the Fast Track to College Act by Congressman Dale Kildee and Senator Herb Cole and discussing the broader strategy of expanding dual enrollment and early college options, particularly for low-income students. I'd like to welcome Congressman Kildee and Senator Cole in a moment to the center and thank them for their important leadership on this issue. And I'd especially like to thank Jobs for the Future and David Binder, an award-winning photojournalist, for the beautiful photographs that you see around the, the around here and on the TV screens and out in the hallway. Um, they're, all, they're scattered around and they show students and, and teachers working in these early college environments. The Fast Track to College Act would authorize the Secretary of Education to create a competitive grant program under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act to provide schools serving low-income students with funding to establish and support dual enrollment programs and early college high schools. Dual enrollment programs and early college high schools offer students the opportunity to earn college credit, potentially even an associate's degree, while also earning their high school diploma. Why are this bill and the strategies it supports so important? As President Obama said when laying out his education agenda last week, and I quote, America's place as a global economic leader will be put at risk if we don't do a far better job than we've been doing educating our sons and daughters. American has, been a, has seen a slowdown in college degree completion over the last 30 years. So much so that we are now ranked 10th among developed nations for 25 to 34 year olds with post-secondary credentials. Contributing to this decline is our lack of success with assisting low-income young people in completing a college education. Only 40% of first-time college goers from low-income families complete a degree. So we need to improve college completion rates for all students but particularly for low-income students. Dual enrollment and early college programs can help to improve college completion rates by providing more students access to college coursework, better preparing them for academic rigor of college education. They give students a head start on early earning college credits. Finally, these are courses from, that are motivating to students. They make the last years of high school more meaningful to many who have become disengaged or bored. So first today, Congressman Kildee and Senator Call will offer remarks on the Fast Track to College Act. Welcome, Senator Call. We will then hear from our expert panelists who have been involved in designing and implementing dual enrollment and early college high school programs. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Congressman Kildee and Senator Cole, two of the foremost champions for education in the Congress. 
Congressman Dale E. Kildee from Michigan is a senior member of the House Committee on Education and Labor, serving as the chairman of the Subcommittee on Early Childhood, Elementary, and Secondary Education. Congressman Kildee was a teacher for 10 years prior to beginning his political career, and since being elected to Congress in 1976, has made improving education policy a central focus of his work. He has consistently supported elementary and secondary schools and public school funding. The congressman has also helped to effect reforms to the Higher Education Act that increased the Pell Grant and lowered interest rates on need-based student loans to enable more students to attend college. In 2007, Congressman Kildee was the chief sponsor of the Improving Head Start for School Readiness Act, which targeted new funding for teacher salaries and professional development and prioritized early Head Start services for infants and toddlers. Senator Herb Cole was elected to the Senate in 1988 and re-elected to a fourth six-year term in 2006. Senator Cole was born and raised in Milwaukee where he attended public schools. He earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1956 and a master's degree in business administration from Harvard University in 1958. As a senior member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, including the, the subcommittee with jurisdiction over the Department of Education, he has advocated for increased federal investments in educational programs ranging from Title I and IDEA to higher education programs such as TRIO and Pell Grants. Additionally, Senator Cole was the author of legislation to expand the school breakfast program and a strong supporter of child nutrition programs and after-school programs. We will begin with Congressman Kildee and then turn to Senator Cole. So, Congressman? Thank you very much, Cindy. Senator, good to see you. Um, I want to thank Senator Cole for uh, working so well on this issue. We've enjoyed working together, and uh, the bill we are discussing, uh, uh, I look forward to working until we see this signed in the Oval Office uh, and really help the children of this country. In real life, I was a school teacher, so I have a special uh, love for this. I also want to thank uh, former Representative Rahm Emanuel, who has gone on to other things. I'm not sure it's bigger things. He's the Chief of Staff for the President of the United States right now, but he has been very interested in this program. And I want to thank the uh, Center for American Progress, Action Fund, and Jobs for the Future for hosting today's panel, which I'm sure you will find informative. Last month, in his address to a joint session of Congress, President Obama asked every American to commit at least one year of college and pledged to do more to make college accessible and affordable for all Americans. The Fast Track to College Act, which Senator Cole and I will introduce today, will help make those goals a reality for students and their families. The act authorizes approximately $140 million for grants to partnerships of school districts, colleges, and others to support early college high schools and other dual enrollment programs. Early college high schools are such sc schools which uh, students graduate with a diploma 
and with 30 to 60 college credits, tuition free. The act also authorizes $10 million for grants to states to expand access to Im and improve the quality of early college high schools and other dual enrollment programs. Today, nearly half of African American students and 40% of Latino students attend high schools where the majority of students do not graduate. Middle and upper class students are almost five times as likely to earn a college degree as low income students. If we did not make every effort to enable every child to reach his or her potential, not only will we have failed our moral responsibility, we will have jeopardized our future as a nation because education goes hand in hand with economic and national security. And I think those in this room really want to emphasize that moral aspect. You know, government's role is to promote, protect, defend, and enhance human dignity. And to give a person a chance to develop their mind, to acquire knowledge, to perfect themselves, really enhances that human dignity. So this moral aspect is extremely important. Early college high schools reach out to students and their families as early as middle school to let them know of the opportunities open to them and the resources there to support them. I have seen the benefits of early college high schools in my own state and district. In, 19, in 2007, Governor Granholm, responding to a recommendation by the Michigan Commission on Higher Education and Economic Development, led by Lieutenant Governor Cherry, funded the opening of six early college high schools around the state, including the Genesee Early College in my district. Genesee Early College is a partnership of the Genesee Intermediate School District, the University of Michigan at Flint, and local health care systems that prepare students for careers in health fields. Genesee Intermediate also is a partner with Mott Community College in the Mott Early College. Mott Middle Early College has been enabling at-risk students to earn their associate's degree since 1991. The Mott uh, model has been replicated at uh, community colleges in Nashville, Tennessee, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Fast Track Act is supported by a range of organizations, including the Center for American Progress, Jobs for the Future, the National Education Association, the American Association of Community Colleges, and the National Association of Secondary School Principals, because they understand the difference it can make for children's lives. Again, upon you rests a great responsibility. Senator Cole and I are really your your servants and the servants of the people we represent. But people like yourself who have uh, expertise in the field and an interest in the field really will make it possible to get that bill over to the Oval Office. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you for those great remarks, Congressman Kildee. Senator Cole? Thank you very much, and along with Congressman Kildee, it's really an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. 
Education has been one of my top priorities since I was elected to the Senate, and I'm proud to sponsor the Fast Track to College legislation with Congressman Kildee, which I believe will help more students graduate from high school and go on to get a college degree. As our country struggles with an economic recession, we must continue to invest in our public schools. While we must carefully consider how taxpayer dollars are spent during these trying times, Education, nevertheless, is one of the wisest investments we can make, and it is an investment that must be made now before our children fall even further behind. Education provides an outstanding return on investments for taxpayers, and it, and it builds the, the foundation for future economic growth. Young people who drop out of high school are at increased risk for unemployment and incarceration, and they are more likely to depend on public assistance for health care housing, and other basic needs. Conversely, adults with a bachelor's degree will earn two-thirds more than a high school graduate over the course of their working lives, and they are much less likely to experience unemployment or rely on social programs. Our nation's future depends on how we respond to the growing crisis in our schools, especially the rising number of high school dropouts. This generation of Americans is the first in history to be less likely to graduate from high school than their parents. That is not a sustainable trend if we hope to remain powerful and prosperous. Recent reports have illustrated the enormous challenge. The national graduation rate is only 70%, and it is even much lower in many large urban school districts. For example, in my home state of Wisconsin, we have a relatively high graduation rate of 86% statewide, but that rate drops to only 46% in the urban schools in Milwaukee. Such an achievement gap cannot continue. As we work to reauthorize the No Child Left Behind Act, we must find solutions to the growing dropout crisis and provide opportunities for young people to pursue higher education. More funding is not the only answer for the problems in our schools. We must also reform our whole approach to education. We must ensure that young people are being equipped with the skills they need to compete in a 21st century economy. And in particular, we can no longer view a high school diploma as a satisfactory goal for students. In today's world, students need at least two years of college or technical education in order to secure a well-paying job and provide for themselves as well as their families. And that's why I'm so excited about this piece of legislation. This bill provides new tools and incentives for schools to attack the dropout problem and send more kids to college. In specific, this bill authorizes $140 million for competitive grants to help schools create and strengthen early college high schools, as well as dual enrollment programs for low-income students. Early college high schools and other dual enrollment programs allow young people to earn college credit including even an associate degree, while also earning the high school diploma. These programs have shown that they really do work, especially among low-income students and those underrepresented in higher education. This evidence shows that all students can be motivated by a challenging curriculum and the tangible rewards of achievement, including real-world exposure to career possibilities and free college credit. This free college credit is critically important, especially in this economy, as family savings dwindle and tuition costs continue.
continue to rise. Dual enrollment programs can provide just enough cost savings to make college affordable, especially for low and middle income families who might think that it is out of their reach. Early college high schools and dual enrollment programs put students on the fast track to college and increase the odds that they will not only graduate, but go on to continue their education and secure higher paying jobs. So I'm proud to sponsor this legislation because I believe that all children, regardless of income, deserve equal opportunities to fulfill their potential, and it is both morally and fiscally responsible for this Congress to invest in high-quality educational programs that help them reach that potential. While our country faces unprecedented challenges at this moment, I believe we also face incredible opportunities to shape our future. So I look forward to working with my colleagues in the Congress to reinvest in a world-class education system that will move our country forward into the 21st century. Thank you so much for having me, and I wish you all well. Thank you, Senator Cole and Congressman Kildee. They have to hasten back to their work on uh, Capitol Hill, and so we will move right into our panel. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you my colleague, Robin Chait, uh, the Associate Director for Teacher Quality here at the Center for American Progress Action Fund, and she will introduce the rest of the panelists. So come on up. I'd like to thank the congressman and senator again for their insightful remarks and for their leadership on this important issue. I'm Robin Chait, Associate Director for Teacher Quality here at CAP, and I'd like to welcome all of you to the panel discussion portion of our event this morning. I think this will be a very enlightening discussion because it allows us to hear from the experts who are actually on the ground implementing dual enrollment and early college high school initiatives or providing advice and technical assistance to others who are implementing these programs. So our discussion today will focus on why these programs are important for increasing college completion, what these programs look like on the ground, and how they need to be designed to help low-income students be successful in college. And I'd like to start by providing an example that illustrates the role that these programs can play in increasing college access and success for students facing difficult life circumstances. After we sent out the invitation to this event, we got an email from a young woman whose life had been changed by a dual enrollment program. This woman grew up in rural poverty with two alcoholic parents. When she was a junior and senior in high school, she attended the community college in her town and got both college and high school credit. She says it was a godsend for her. Why? High school was very boring for her, but this program allowed her to skip some high school classes and take college classes instead. For her, this meant she didn't just stop going to school because she was bored. It allowed her and others participating in the program to gain college credit for free. Because she was taking college classes and working, she was able to arrange her daily schedule so that she was hardly home or was sleeping when her parents were around, which reduced interaction and abuse. Though it was not a perfect solution, it did help her a lot. 
So I think this story illustrates the potential of fast-track options to meet the individual needs of disadvantaged students. And while I think many of us who've worked on this issue have thought of fast-track options as providing academic rigor and increasing access to college, these options can also play an important role in providing hope to students who need it for a brighter future that involves a college education and a well-paying job. This hope and motivation can be critical to students in making it through high school and on to college. So our discussion today will focus on using these fast-track options to increase college access and success for low-income youth. And now I'd like to introduce our panelists. We'll start with Joel Vargas, Program Director for Jobs for the Future. Joel studies and advises states on their policies to promote improved rates of high school and post-secondary success for underserved students. He's focused in particular on new education pathways that blend high school and college, such as early college high schools and comprehensive dual enrollment programs. Next, we'll hear from Don Cooper, Director of the Early College Initiative for the Board of Regents of the University System of the Georgia Office of P16 Initiatives. That's quite a mouthful. Early college seeks to make higher education more accessible and affordable with a higher completion rate for traditionally underrepresented students. And last but not least, Tracy Mead is the University Director for Collaborative Programs at the Office of Academic Affairs of the City University of New York. Ms. Mead is responsible for oversight of College Now, the university's largest partnership with the New York City Secondary Schools. And she also oversees the CUNY Middle, Middle Grades Initiative Gear Up Program the newly created at home and college program, and the research and evaluation unit for coll collaborative programs. So let's begin. Joel. Thank you for that introduction, Robin. Is my um, slideshow right up yes. here? Or do I just, okay, terrific. Uh, again, my name is Joel Vargas. I wanna thank everyone for coming today. And I, I wanna thank uh, the Center for American Progress uh, who have been terrific partners uh, uh, ongoing over the years and uh, also for their hosting this event. And I especially want to thank uh, Senator Cole and uh, Congressman Kildee for their leadership on this very important issue. And it's one that we think uh, at Jobs for the Future holds really great promise for increasing post-secondary attainment, especially for students who really need it most, uh, those who have traditionally low education attainment. Um, let me just say a word, quick word about Jobs for the Future. We're an over 25-year-old uh, nonprofit advocacy, consulting, and research uh, firm. And um, our goal is to really ensure that all adults in this nation uh, have the skills that they need to get and hold jobs with family sustaining wages. So a lot of our work focuses on high schools and college strategies that are designed to ensure that more young people in this country get a post-secondary credential or degree, which is really the ticket now to a family sustaining wage. And the reason we think that early college, high school, and dual enrollment uh, strategies that have similar features are quite promising is because uh, they tend to strike at the multiple barriers that low-income students face to completing post-secondary education. And what I like to do is just, I think it's worth reminding ourselves, although I know this is an educated group, uh, I think it's worth reminding ourselves of just what those barriers look like. If you see uh, the leftmost column. Uh, what that represents is um, it starts by showing that a great number of entering high schoolers never complete post-secondary education and that this is an acute problem for low-income students who are those in, in the lowest two quintiles uh, 
of socioeconomic status who are represented here by the blue and red bars throughout this chart. So the left-hand column is uh, the total number of eighth graders who go on to complete a post-secondary education. What accounts for those dismal numbers are uh, leakages that occur at every critical juncture of the education pipeline. Uh, we do, as you see the pattern here, is we do a poor job for a lot of our students in this country, but we do an especially poor job for low-income students in getting them to graduate high school and graduating them prepared for college uh, and encouraging them to enroll in some sort of post-secondary education and in actually seeing the students who enroll complete post-secondary education, which is really what you need to do to, have, uh, to get your ticket to the family sustaining wage. So what this slide uh, would tell you, would suggest, is that we need much improved pathways, better pathways, and new ways of thinking about how to create better transitions through high school, into college, and through college, because the system we've got is not working very well. And to go back to my theme of multiple barriers that these students face, this slide shows that academic preparation is an important factor in post-secondary success, but it's certainly not the only factor, and particularly uh, for low-income students, there are a number of other barriers that come into play. And you know, even for ostensibly uh, prepared students who enter college, this shows that low-income students uh, who are prepared graduate at much lower rates than their similarly, similarly prepared higher income peers. So there's something more that's going on there. And I would categorize these in kind of three, three uh, categories, if you will. <laughs> and uh, so on the left-hand side, you'll see the category of barriers, and on the right-hand side are the fast-track strategies that uh, hold promise to address those barriers. The first, we've mentioned academic preparation, so important. Students don't need to know what they know by the time to succeed in college-level coursework when they get to college. Students also don't have what David Conley calls the habits of mind, which, you know, in the shorthand are the proactive learning strategies that they need to be successful at the college level. And Fast Track potentially addresses this by uh, giving students support to succeed in college coursework, real college coursework thus giving students a clearer and earlier idea of what colleges will expect of them when they go. Um, it also gives an opportunity for local colleges and high schools to work together to develop a much better, more rational scope and sequence uh, of learning expectations and student supports between grades 9 and 14 to change that picture that I showed you earlier. Students also face financial barriers to college. And what fast-track strategies have the potential to do is to really make uh, a firm, transparent financial commitment to students and their families that, that we think is motivational, that if you prepare yourself and as you prepare yourself for college, you will get access to free college coursework. Students also face, face uh, barriers in terms of social support. And that is, you, students don't identify themselves uh, with college. Uh, they often don't realistically know what it takes to negotiate a path from high school to college because they haven't been surrounded, typically, by people who have gone to college themselves and have undertaken that experience. Um, the students also don't, especially low-income students, don't have uh, the experience of getting encouragement to meet academic stretch goals, which can help them create, you know, creates a sense of, 
uh, self-efficacy, which is so important to resilience and further education. And fast-track to college uh, approaches potentially address that by giving students uh, a pipeline of academic and social support through, the, uh, through high school and the early years of college, which are so critical. Um, there also is something about what better way for a student to begin to identify themselves as a college student than to actually help them become a college student for a little while while they're in high school and give them authentic rehearsal, if you will, with being a college student. And on that last point, we have some qualitative evidence from a former Harvard researcher who's now at the University of Pennsylvania, Mike Nakala, who uh, has interviewed a number of early college students and has shown that uh, the experience of succeeding in college-level coursework actually has helped students shift their academic identity development in positive directions from kind of merely just hoping or maybe believing that they might be able to prepare for college and that it's for, for them to knowing because they've actually completed college coursework successfully. There's also quantitative evidence that's emerging about the promise of these strategies. And I would cite recent research about uh, from the Community College Resource Center, which studied two large-scale programs, one in Florida and one uh, at the City University of New York, which is actually, we have a representative here, so she'll, she'll talk more about that program. Um, what they found was controlling for key academic and uh, social background characteristics that uh, dual enrollment showed a positive relationship to college going after high school, to persistence through the second year, and also to higher GPA in the second year. And what this slide shows and what they found, which I think is uh, particularly important for this conversation, is these strategies, uh, the effect sizes seem to be bigger for students who are typically underrepresented in higher education. In this case, uh, the slide shows for male students, the effects on GPA were higher. This is just for the Florida program. And for um, low socioeconomic students students with low socioeconomic status, the effects were higher. So the benefits may be higher for those groups. In, in all, federal investment in these approaches is um, more than warranted. Uh, we do need more evidence, but there's great promise. There's evidence to support um, the fact that these are good strategies to be using. With the caveat that the programs really need to be um, designed with key features that we know are so important to the success of underrepresented student populations. I'll just name a few here if you focus on the left-hand side, and I'll touch upon on the right-hand side some of the policies that we think can enable some of those approaches at the state level. You know, the practices, they, these programs really need to offer students courses that lead to something, lead to a post-secondary degree or credential. They need to be real college courses with real college standards. Uh, they need to be offered at low or no cost in order to be accessible to low-income students and serve the target population, including textbook costs, which are a hidden but huge cost. They also need to provide support systems for students that um, we can talk about a little bit more later. Uh, they also need to promote close partnerships between high schools and colleges so that high school and college faculty can work better to align their expectations and standards. Now, some of the policies that promote these practices, states really need to ensure that both high schools and colleges have incentives to offer these approaches. 
through per pupil uh, state funding uh, that uh, in some cases they provide uh, tuition support for students in these programs. That if students want to go on and do more post-secondary education that they are assured that their credits earned while they're dual enrollees will transfer. Uh, that the state sets some uh, quality guidelines to ensure that college courses are real college courses and that students uh, have access to information and access to programs that are specially designed uh, for low-income populations. I'm going to end here with um, some early evidence from the early college high school initiative which was spurred and supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation starting in 2002-2003 um, has resulted in 200 schools with over 40,000 students. Uh, despite the big numbers there, I'll have to remind you that these are really young schools. We've only had really two uh, large graduating cohorts and that's what these numbers represent. Um, one of JFF's roles has been to coordinate a network of national intermediary organizations that has supported the development and sustainability of these schools. And um, the early results, as you can see, show great promise. We're serving the target population. Uh, what you should know about these numbers for the free and reduced lunch and students of color is that they are quite representative of uh, the composition of schools in their home districts. Okay, the aggregate numbers alone are pretty big, but um, pretty telling, but uh, you should also know that fact. And students are graduating with a significant number of college credits. Um, 40% have earned more than a year, and over 10% have, have uh, earned an AA by the time of graduation. So I, I will uh, end it here, look forward to your questions. I want to thank you for your attention. I want to, again, uh, emphasize that I hope that the story I've told here has uh, made a case uh, for these uh, approaches as an important strategy for raising the post-secondary attainment of low-income youth. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. That's a really helpful overview of what we know about the impact of fast-track strategies and how they should be designed to be most effective. And now we will have a state perspective from Don. Good morning, everyone. I also would like to thank the Center for American Progress for uh, allowing us to have this venue to talk about the importance of dual enrollment and early college and also the opportunities that should be made available for underrepresented students. Um, we're also very fortunate to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Jobs for the Future for their support of this initiative and being able to help us bring the vision of the success for these students to the state of Georgia. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about what's going on in Georgia and how our students have benefited from this wonderful program of early college and how dual enrollment is, is key in the success of this type of program. Early college in Georgia, as Joel mentioned, is a partnership and that really is what is key in these types of programs because it brings individuals to the table who may have come together before but not for something like this to talk about the needs of the community, the needs of the local community as well as the state and how the school system and the college can work together but also bringing in community partners that talk about what's going on in their school system, in their counties and how they can work together to help these students become successful. It's a blended model of high school that it takes students out of a traditional environment 
And that's key as well because the students have to feel as though they're in a, in a different environment. Many of these students have been struggling in a traditional high school or middle school environment, a larger comprehensive high school. So it's very important that we do let them know immediately that this is a different type of program. And we also have different expectations for you because not only is high school graduation a must and a necessity, but we do expect you to have some college credit before you leave so that you will feel better prepared to be successful in completing college and using that college degree to help you improve your quality of life. There's also a very rigorous curriculum involved. Even though the majority of these students may enter early college as struggling learners, the curriculum has to be rigorous in order to prepare them for a college environment, for college coursework. So we want the curriculum to be rigorous. The curriculum to be rigorous. I'm sorry. Also, using some very innovative and data-driven instructional strategies, which is very key. Uh, we use strategies like collaborative work, group work, writing to learn, making sure students have the feel of a college environment. We prepare them for that. They sit in on college classes before they enter. Many times there are college professors that co-teach their middle school and high school coursework. They have involvement with tutors and mentors from the campus. So they have a very rich experience of a college environment because many times it's the adaptation of that new environment that helps students struggle as well as not being academically prepared as well. So we believe those Social supports are very important to help students succeed. And also the opportunity to earn college credit through dual enrollment. Uh, the structure has to be set up so that students can achieve high school and college credit at the same time in order for them to have a less time to completion of a college degree. So the policies in Georgia are very friendly to that environment, which is why we're able to uh, do early college in Georgia. Our targeted population is, is that of the Early College Initiative, which includes low-income students, uh, minority, minorities with the emphasis on minority males, uh, first-generation college students, and struggling learners. We have several of our programs that actually uh, specifically target struggling learners to make sure that we are focusing on that population of students. Uh, there are several dual enrollment programs that are doing wonderful work, but we feel like early college, college is a more focused um, target effort to reach out to these students who traditionally may not seek dual enrollment as an option. So the focus on that target population is very important. We do have partners on the local level, but on the state level we have the University System of Georgia, and the national level the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Jobs for the Future, and the Georgia Department of Education. And it's very important because many times there are state policies that will help support early college, and so we have to have partners that will allow us to look at things that will make dual enrollment a more friendly environment, not only for early college students, but students across the state of Georgia. We're finding that early college itself is really pushing some of the limits of what a traditional dual enrollment program may look like and looking at those barriers whenever you aggressively are targeting students to achieve more college credits, then we're looking at removing some of those barriers that we may not have seen before we had programs that would target that type of uh, output for students. Currently we have 12 sites across the state of Georgia and again they are all partners with the University System Georgia and a local school system. We had six round of sites that were funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Robert Woodruff Foundation and the second round of sites were funded by the University System of Georgia. The continued funding is obviously we use, uh, we do write several grants to continue the support of the program because the supports are also what makes it different as well. Students have to have some type of mentoring, some type of tutoring. Many times transportation is an issue if the programs are not located on the school, on the uh, college campus and it is ideal for that to happen but that's not always possible. So we uh, support them through programs. Excel Lottery Funds in Georgia actually funds the dual enrollment college coursework. 
and that is for core academic courses. They also receive a book stipend as well. This is the same pot of money that supports the HOPE scholarship for the state of Georgia, uh, but is obviously used for dual enrollment as well. We, when the partners come together at the table, they find different ways, again, to support the school that are not always, that they'll always have a dollar sign attached to it. There's a lot of in-kind support that goes on. They leverage a lot of the programs that go on within the community and find different ways for them to support early college. So having those individuals at the table uh, focusing on student achievement, they come up with several ways to support early college that they may not have thought of before. And obviously the schools are again supported through FTE and local state uh, funding. Some of the schools are charters across the state. Currently we do not have any charter schools in Georgia, but it is an option for additional funding because it is a use of innovative uh, structure and programs for the school. Uh, we are serving a target population in Georgia. We have over 87% of our students that are minority, 80% uh, of low income, and 75% are first-generation college students. There are several models in Georgia. We have a 6 through 12 model, uh, 7 through 12 models, and a 9 through 12 model. We hope to open about 21 schools by 2015, uh, pending state budget approval for our funding source uh, that we that actually allows our schools to be able to receive implementation funding for three years. Our schools really work to not only address the needs of students, but to also look at what are the workforce demands in the community. Uh, what are the majors at our local institutions that support those workforce demands? And we encourage our schools to have a theme for, their, uh, for the actual early college. It does not mean that every student has to actually follow this career, but it really exposes them to what's going on locally, what are the high uh, demand um, careers locally, and look at ways to expose them to those careers and expose them to the college coursework they will need to be prepared for those careers. We have had some very early successes. Our schools are outscoring their districts as well as the state in their end of course tests on average. We have our first graduating class in May 2009, so we're a very new initiative. But these are numbers of what we expect, and obviously these are expectations, uh, but uh, all indications are uh, uh, current as well as what we're concerned that these students will have about 97% at Carver Early College in Atlanta that will graduate, 100% will receive some college credit, 50% will earn 30 to 60 hours, 88% will be accepted into a four-year college and 12% to a two-year college. And again, this is early indicators of what we've seen from students' uh, application letters uh, as well as the coursework that they're currently taking right now and on the college campuses. And again, this is an example of that first legacy school that we have and their end of course test results. And they are, as you can see, outperforming the district and the state. Uh, this is an additional school, DeKalb Early College, which is actually doing the same thing. We're very proud of their efforts on the end of course tests and graduation tests. And this is one of our middle school models as well. This is one of those that actually partners with two school systems in the state of Georgia, Baldwin and Putnam County and they partner with Georgia College and State University. So we're seeing very unique models across the state, and we allow for those models to look at what's going to work in that school system. It's very important that these schools address the needs of the community as well as looking at what their target population is. Some of those school systems, the target population will be heavily low income but might not be as heavy minority. So we focus on looking at what's good for the community. Why we're doing this, we obviously want to remove barriers uh, for higher education for underrepresented students, looking at closing the achievement gap, because as many, uh, we have about 80% of our students who are 75, that are first generation in their family to go to college. Some of our schools, it's as many as 70% um, 
first generation in their family to actually graduate from high school. So we're looking at really changing the mindset of, of the community, looking at providing a more educated workforce to address 21st century demands, breaking the cycle of poverty with students being first generation in their family. As Joel mentioned earlier, they haven't had anyone to expose them to the rigor of a, a college of a college environment, but also how to actually navigate the waters. And many students who actually would actually go to college, they are not doing well enough to actually stay and graduate. So we want students to get this extra support that they need the first two years of college, which was the highest retention, uh, lowest retention rate in college, be able to have that support here in early college for those college courses, and hopefully will allow those students to be more successful and graduate. But it's also creating a savings model as well. Obviously, it, it will allow students uh, to have a less, uh, a less time of completion to a college degree if they're taking college courses and high school courses at the same time. So the actual state is saving money on those students because you have a student who will leave early college and many times only need two more years before they receive a bachelor's degree. Most importantly, as the Senator uh, mentioned earlier, it is a moral imperative as well as an economic necessity that we do address an a more educated workforce for underrepresented students to allow them to be contributing members of our society, but also to allow them to improve their quality of life through education. And we'd like to be able to give them that chance to do so through these types of policies. Thank you. Thanks, Don. It's really helpful to hear about how states can support local programs and what that support actually looks like. And now for a program perspective, Tracy. Good morning. Um, it's, it's great to have so many people to thank because it means that we're building our community of support for the, these kind of programs that uh, we're gonna speak about today. I too wanna thank the Center for American Progress and JFF for supporting our work and giving us this opportunity um, to speak with you today. I also wanna thank the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for support of our early colleges and Mayor Bloomberg's Center for Economic Opportunity for supporting our GED College Prep High School. I have to thank CUNY because it really does a great effort in supporting all of our pre-college programs. Um, I've distributed three handouts and I will spend most of my five minutes on the second handout, uh, the one in the middle of your package. Uh, as for the top page, the one with the small unreadable font, uh, let me just say that College Now is one of many university-funded programs for public school students and out-of-school youth. The City University of New York sponsors 11 early college high schools, a college prep GED school, a middle grades gear-up initiative, and several other public school programs. College Now is the City University of New York's dual enrollment with the New York City Department of Education. The university supports college now with a $10 million annual allocation. If you turn to the middle page, you'll read that college now is a university-wide program, which means that all 17 of its undergraduate colleges have college now programs. Students from over 300 New York City public schools participate in our fall, spring, and summer program. In 2006-2007, 28,942 students enrolled in over 44,000 college credit course, courses and other activities. Close to one-third of our students participated in more than one course or activity, and I will refer to this, this statistic again in a minute. I want to step back from the big picture now and focus on two essential program design features both of, it, both of which were not in place when I started with the program eight years ago. 
we've learned a great deal about program impact from close study of our data. Here's what we found. Program data will tell you whether, you whether or not you are enrolling, as we call it, a representative population of high school students. We continue to struggle to enroll a representative population, although we've made considerable, considerable progress on this key program goal over the past four years. To reach those students missing from our programs, we now use active recruiting methods. Instead of relying entirely on teachers and counselors, who tend to reach out primarily to students they know personally, we spend more and more time in the schools identifying the populations we'd like to serve and providing professional development for principals and teachers about the need to involve students who don't readily come to mind as college-bound. More recently, we've launched an effort to provide high school principals and staff with data on how their students perform when faced with one, two, or three remedial courses in their first year of college or their first year at CUNY specifically. Needless to say, students with the greatest remedial needs rarely make it through their first year of college. This new approach has helped us make the case that these predominantly community college-bound students need to place out of remediation, and we need to join forces with the schools to help them do so. I can't stress active, multidimensional recruitment strategies enough when, when referring to dual enrollment programs. We also link up with other university-sponsored programs, such as CUNY's Blackmail Initiative, and we partner with various community-based organizations. As we now know that increasing the college-going and graduation rates of black and Hispanic males and low-income students in general will not happen without coordinated effort. Voluntary, voluntary participation in dual enrollment as defined as college, college credit coursework only gives you a program that serves, for the most part, the better prepared students in a given high school. And in New York City, sadly, the majority of the system's better prepared students are not the city's black and Hispanic or lowest income students, even though they represent the majority of students in the public schools. I should say here that the New York City Department of Education's Children First school reform effort has been actively engaged in changing this picture. The second key program feature you need to have in place, preferably from the beginning, is a coherent sequence of college preparatory activities for students who are not eligible for college credit courses. Many of the students we work so much harder to reach are students in 11th and 12th grade who are ineligible for college credit coursework, or students in the 9th and 10th grade who are in need of earlier engagement with college expectations so that they will have a chance at meeting eligibility requirements in their later years in high school. Over the years, we've developed multiple points of entry into college now. And for each entry point, we've developed a sequence of preparatory courses and activities that encourage ongoing participation. Although some of our campuses are further along than others in developing coherent sequences, all of them are on the same page about the importance of multiple pathways and participation in more than one activity over the academic year. As I've said earlier, close to one-third of our students enroll in more than one activity. We'd like to have 50% of our students enroll in more than one activity. The reaching, that goal will, that reaching that goal will take some time or prefer, preferably some policy. The last point I want to make is about data. The final page of your handout shows the number of CUNY first-time freshmen from public, school, from public schools 
with and without College Now experience. I give you this to show you that we know where our students are in CUNY and we know how they are doing. And we have consistently seen in our descriptive statistics that College Now students persist to a third semester at a rate of approximately 10% greater than their peers from the New York City public schools who have not been in the program. Two years ago, we found through a first-run multivariate analysis that graduation rates, uh, that graduates of the public schools who had college now experience earned more credits in their first year at CUNY, and I, as I just said, retention to a third semester also increased. Uh, we need a second study, and we have a great deal more, more data at this point, so I look forward to bringing you these findings as soon as possible. Um, the last thing I want to say is that when you know a city by its schools, you really can see the future. And I think the City University of New York, and in its vigorous support of pre-college programs, is setting a great example, and it's a, a pleasure to be a part of this work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tracy. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing some of the lessons that you learned about how to design a successful program. And I was wondering if, Joel or Dawn, if you have some lessons that you could share with us about ways to design successful programs or if you could talk about some of the barriers that you've overcome. You want to start? I'll go first. Um, we've learned a lot of lessons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I believe uh, some of the common phrases at our early college convenings is that we are um, building a plane while we're flying it uh, because it's very innovative what we're doing. We're talking about um, targeting students who traditionally have not even performed well in high school and providing an accelerated model that will allow them to perform successfully in high school and also successfully in college. So one of the barriers has really been sort of the ed trust barrier of dis dispelling the myth that these students actually cannot succeed but also being able to provide the support for them to succeed and supporting a different environment for them to succeed. Uh, so the Barry has really been changing the mindset of targeting an underrepresented population. And the best way to do that is through data, obviously. Um, we only have one school that has a current graduating class, so we feel as though we'll get a lot more support once these wonderful students graduate and uh, attend college. Um, but again, being able to be very uh, concise about the data, collecting the data and sharing it um, is obviously a strategy to remove those types of barriers. Um, also the partnership, bringing individuals at the, to the table very early on in the building process. And that's every individual that could possibly have some input and some support for the early college. They need to be at the table when these schools are being um, built, talked about, discussed, and also finding the win-wins for all of the partners as well. Because our college partners, um, even though it's not initially seen as much, they have a lot, of, lot to gain from this process because they have a better prepared student. Um, also, we partner with a lot of College of Education programs, so we're obviously preparing some better teachers. We're exposing more students to the teaching profession, which addresses teacher shortages. And also, it improves the college retention and graduation rate as well when they have better prepared students and they are going to graduate at higher rates as well. So um, I would say those are some barriers that we have overcome and addressed with the initiative, the partnership, but also um, 
our early colleges are, are looked at as professional development sites as well because we're doing some really uh, innovative uh, things with instruction, with teaching and learning, and we want other schools to be able to learn from that as well. And so we want these schools to be models uh, for that and also a catalyst for dual enrollment and college awareness in the uh, surrounding communities. Thank you. Joel? Yeah, I guess from a national and state policy perspective, I would echo many of the themes that uh, Dawn just struck, which is, um, you know, mainly I guess you could put under the heading of a lot of these existing dual enrollment programs don't necessarily uh, bring to mind the types of strategies that we're talking about. And in lots of ways, the potential of this bill is to, is to push uh, programs that are trying approaches that are supportive of low-income populations uh, to do more of that stuff. Uh, because what is uh, usually the modal dual enrollment program, what it has been, is uh, kind of a cafeteria of college courses that uh, maybe if you're a student who is in a quote-unquote advanced student who is already doing well, it gives you a chance, and there's some value in this, maybe gives you a chance to take a course here or there at the, at the college level, which has some value. Um, I think that is in stark contrast to the type of approach that we're describing here, which I think is embedded in fast track. Um, and it entails really close partnership between the high school and the college to really be thoughtful about what does it mean to jointly take responsibility for these students in this transition that we know is so bad uh, between uh, grades 9 and 14 and uh, build better supports, build a better scope and sequence of courses so that students are prepared along each segment and have the support they need to really get some momentum towards a post-secondary degree. That's a different type of model than the cafeteria style model. And I think that this bill might uh, have a chance of incentivizing more of the type of activity that'll help low income students and other underrepresented populations. Building on your comments, Joel, what do some of these key support strategies look like? Well, I, I will lean on some of my other colleagues here to describe it in more depth, but we have, you know, there are a range. I mean, we've seen um, schools that uh, do anything from, it's a lot of, actually, Center for American Progress promotes a lot of extended day and extended year, school year strategies. Uh, you see that quite often because extended learning time is so important for these populations. Uh, a lot of parental engagement uh, efforts you see in some of our, in some of our stronger efforts. Uh, college seminar courses, which are offered for students who are actually taking college courses to really get together uh, with a mentor who's usually a teacher at the high school level, maybe even a college faculty member, to help them kind of decode what it is at the college level that they need to, the things that they need to do to be proactive uh, learners, to have the learning strategies that they need to succeed in their courses. And something that high schools, hard to believe, don't really do as a normal course um, of, of, of what they do. Um, they also, there are also college foundation courses, which we, we cite as a model what CUNY has tried to construct with Tracy described earlier and she might elucidate on now. Um, intensive literacy strategies at the front end of, uh, you know, ninth grade or even reaching down very early into the middle school years to prepare students. The earlier you get them, the more time you have to prepare them for early college coursework. So those are just some examples. Great. Thank you. I would, I would 
definitely uh, echo the instructional strategies and the literacy strategies as well of getting students to write and think like a college student uh, as early as possible and taking them out of that traditional framework uh, has been very successful what we found as well. Um, bringing students on campus uh, for different experiences even during the summer, uh, different stages before they actually begin the early college model. We like to bring them on the campus and let them see actually what this environment would be like. Um, also sort of boot camp experiences before they actually begin taking the college courses. So very intense uh, exposure to the rigor of a college class Room. Uh, many of them actually look at uh, college syllabi to see what types of things are required, uh, what types of writing styles they have to have uh, as a college student uh, is very important. Um, I would also like to echo what Joel mentioned about those partners being jointly accountable. Um, our schools have advisory committees that meet in the planning stages of the school as well as ongoing throughout the school year to look at what ways can we both be joint or all be jointly accountable for student success and also be a part of the advocacy movement of um, dispelling the myth that these students actually will not be able to succeed, um, being very, very um, very purposeful about uh, collecting data and sharing it as well as the students progress to be able to tell the stories of early colleges as well. So the support structures are, are very, very important. Um, we have mentoring and tutoring um, actually is provided through service learning programs that, that already exist at the college level. So the partnership, you know, to me is really key because you can find different ways to support students uh, that, that may not have been thought of before. Thank you. Tracy? We just want to emphasize that um, dual enrollment programs are very, very different than early college high schools and they're much more limited in um, what they have to offer students. So it's more important or it's very important to try to figure out who you want to reach uh, in the schools and really work very hard on reaching those target populations. If you're merely offering college credit courses, and the sponsoring college feels that that's enough, you're going to find that you're not reaching students who we're clearly interested in reaching. I, I think that's one point. Another thing that we've done is we've designed um, summer programs at almost all 17 colleges. So students come to, the, uh, come to the campus for four to six weeks all day, usually from 10 to 4. It was amazing how few people believed that you could actually get New York Public City School students to spend their summers doing either college credit and some internship or other activity in the afternoon or some um, inquiry-based or experiential learning in the afternoon or a non-credit course, say, for ninth or 10th graders and the same activity, same type of activity in the afternoon. Our programs are oversubscribed. So I feel like the the one thing that these programs consistently do is reveal that a lot of our assumptions about uh, these students in the middle are, are wrong if you take the time and design a good program and work very hard to partner with the schools. And the final thing I'll say is, and I think this goes to what Dawn was saying, is that many of our teachers in college now are public high school students public high school teachers certified as college adjuncts. And we offer college now at our community colleges and our senior colleges, which are our baccalaureate granting institutions. And the high school teachers, we really do a lot of professional development with them because they, in many ways, have to learn 
uh, as do our college faculty, that they have to be much more explicit about telling students what the demands of college are. So while they're teaching, we're helping them devise instructional strategies and just meta-conversations about what kids need in college. So working closely with all of the faculty, both the high school and college faculty, is a key element of this program. Thank you. Now I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions, beginning with the press first. Uh, Claudia Sanchez, National Public Radio. Would it be fair to say that if high schools were really doing their jobs and if the high school curriculum really reflected what colleges required, that this wouldn't be necessary? And as a part of that, how does a model like this help uh, reform or advance the improvement of the high school curriculum so that it just does, does the job that it should be doing? I think that's a really good question. I would go back to my, without actually literally going back to my slide, take you back to the multiple barriers framework that I talked about and how, you know, I think in the conception that you laid out that uh, if high schools just did their job, I think we think of that as academically preparing students for the college experience, that that would be sufficient. There's a lot of data suggesting that that is not the only factor that uh, determines whether or not a student is going to go on to college and succeed in college. Financial barriers, social supports, uh, seeing themselves as a college student. These are things that even in the best of high schools and students who graduate from them who are as I said earlier, there was a slide, ostensibly prepared, they'll find themselves in college but don't graduate at rates comparable to their high, higher income, comparably achieving peers. So there is, um, you know, in that respect, I think these programs actually do offer a lot more than a high school alone could, uh, but certainly as a, as a complement, as a supplement to what they do. And to answer your question about reform, um, you know, I would go back to what I said about uh, the power of this in part being the opportunity for high schools and colleges to work closely together to align their standards, which we know are quite, you know, nationally. There are a lot of studies by uh, researchers like David Conley, organizations like Achieve, that show the terrible disconnect between high school curriculum and standards and what colleges expect. And in part, if you see this as a reform strategy, it's a very powerful local reform strategy to get colleges and high schools into a conversation about how to align their expectations better because they're going to prepare students while they're in high school to take college coursework and succeed in them. And, and I would add that uh, just at around 10 o'clock in New York City today, Mayor Bloomberg and uh, the chancellors from both the public school system and our university uh, met to announce a college readiness and success working group to do precisely the things that Joel just mentioned. One, to bring educators from both institutions together to talk about the lack of alignment of college exit and university entrance standards, to discuss the non-academic and college-going culture aspects of the high school that colleges can help um, improve and to really talk about, I think, what Katie Haycock talks about, which is joint accountability. Um, those, th this is a wonderful opportunity for our two institutions to do this work, but 
I have to take some credit and say that a lot of the pre-college programs have powered that knowledge to get the university and the school system together today to make that announcement. So without actual work of college faculty and high school faculty on a daily basis in the university's pre-college programs, the urgency of the divide uh, isn't as clear to most staff in either institution. And I think Michael Kirst at Stanford is a great resource in knowing about the history of the separation of the curriculum in K-12 and higher ed. I would definitely uh, agree with both Tracy and Joel. And, and just also echo uh, Tracy's earlier comments about being specific about targeting the population. Because again, in your best performing high schools, there's still going to be uh, an, a subset of students that have traditionally not performed well, uh, are in a cycle in their communities, of, of may not meet anyone in that community that has graduated from college or has gone to college. And so the habits of mind that he talked about earlier are just not really present and coherent for these students. And so if there's not more of a targeted approach to provide those students with that support structure, they will continuously uh, slip through the cracks because we often look at successful high school as having 80% or 90% of your students graduating and going to college, but there's still that subset of students that's not performing well and that subset is looking the same across the country. So if we don't really do something to target that subset of students, then they, that, they will continue to have the same results. Even when our high schools are performing well, there's still going to be a group of kids that are not getting their needs met. <clears throat> traditional high schools can learn from some of these strategies that early college high schools are I, implementing. I absolutely do believe that and we really are working hard to provide that type of environment at our schools in Georgia. We want our schools to be professional development sites. Even if you're not able to have a small class size, there's a lot that can be done with collaborative group work, even in a group in a classroom of 30-something kids. So there's a lot of what we're doing that they can learn from. They can also build those type of partnerships at their school. They don't necessarily have to have an early college to build a good partnership with their college partner. So there's lots about our model that can be used to improve uh, other types of high schools. Thank you. Jay Bonstengel, the Center for Schools of Quality, Columbia, Maryland. Um, having been a teacher for 17 years, uh, I've seen a lot of kids, pre-high school kids, fall by the wayside because they, every year, year after year, grow to believe that they can't do it. And I'm wondering, how, how do you work with the pre-high school population to inculcate in them a sense of self-awareness, self-efficacy, so that by the time they get to high school, they're ready for the opportunity to emerge for this? How do we, and particularly Joel, how do we build into what we do in our school systems uh, an opportunity for kids to think of themselves in terms of their own capacity for leadership and for entrepreneurship, which stimulates the appetite for what you're offering. Thank you. Great question, and I actually will let Dawn take most of this because she has a number of middle schools in her network, but I mean, I, I can answer generally. I mean, I'll, I'll answer from the perspective of one early college that I just visited in uh, Hidalgo, Texas, on the, on the border with Mexico, and they actually are a, an early college school that is technically, and they call themselves an early college district. <coughs> Excuse me. 
It's a small district um, with one with one high school. The high school is about 800 students, but the point is is that every student will have an opportunity to earn college credit. First of all, all of them are prepared for college. Uh, they take a college common uh, prep core curriculum on uh, the ninth and tenth grades that prepares them for some college uh, by the eleventh and twelfth grades. Technically speaking, they actually take some college courses in the ninth and tenth grade, including some AP and pre. Uh, and then they have a set of, to start to get down to your question, what happens before the high school experience is they, they backward map and start thinking about what are the experiences that students are going to need to succeed in those AP courses. So they have you know, pre-AP courses that they do. Uh, and uh, they're also considering doing you know, similar strategies with SAT, PSAT types of activities. Those are a little bit older. What we saw in their middle school and elementary school, though, was a real conscientiousness about, you know, really letting the students know that once they got to high school, they were going to be in college. And so to do that, they, uh, I think the physical manifestation of it was just an awareness all the way around, all, the, all around the building of college banners, uh, uh, information about careers and how you get prepared for them. You know, all pretty much, you know, and all targeted towards family sustaining wages. Uh, and then, you know, have students uh, do some kind of career awareness activities and college awareness activities in addition to the academic support so that students begun to see themselves and internalize this identity as a college going student because it's made more real because the, the divide is, you know, eliminated in high school. They know that when they get to high school, they're going to be a college student. I would definitely agree that the expectation, <clears throat> raising the expectation for students as early as possible uh, can have a lot to do with that. In our middle school programs, again, they, they are uh, brought on campus uh, during the summer, even if the program is not located on the college campus, because that's just not always feasibly possible to do. But they bring the students on campus uh, before they actually come to early college, and, and just to let them know that you do belong here. This is not a, a place that you don't belong, and many of them have been in an environment or the community with a college that's been five minutes away from their home, they never stepped foot on the campus before, and not, neither has their parents. So they're both brought on campus, they're welcome, and they let them know that you are now a part of this community whether or not you felt like you were before or not. And so that's done immediately. The students are given college IDs, and they're not real college IDs, you know, they're more of affiliate type things. But they let them know you are actually now a part of this college process. Even though you're not taking college classes, you're a part of this process, and you will be taking classes at some point that's an expectation so that to me is immediate change in an expectation level for students not only is it not a question if you're going to graduate from high school but it is a question of how many credits are you going to get before you leave here uh, and how much longer will you have after you leave here before you achieve your bachelor's degree because they're very aware of that goal as soon as they begin the program most of them have interview processes and some of them have contracts that the parents and the students sign that says this is what we expect this is how we're going to help you with this process. So we let them know that right away. And we're targeting students in our middle school program that are anywhere between the 25th and the 50th percentile on the Iowa Test of Basic Skills, and letting them know that regardless of what you have done before, we expect you to perform at this level while you're here. And so the students are then challenged a bit more, and the expectations have changed for them. And so to me, that has a lot to do with changing their mindset about education. Wait for the microphone. 
Susan Sclafani from the National Center on Education and the Economy. Tracy, you talked about the kinds of courses that were offered that raised the students' level of performance dramatically. And I'm wondering whether your, your new partnership is going to focus on enabling many teachers in all high schools to be able to teach that kind of course, because you know, that's been a major challenge. So many of our high school teachers think that if kids are coming to them two, three years below grade level, there's nothing they can do. So how is it, how are you going to take what you've learned from the successful courses and apply it more broadly and publish the results so that others in, not in New York City can also apply those strategies where they are? Okay. Thank you. Um, well, we started this effort uh, with college faculty, not high school teachers. Um, and we asked them to pick a major assignment in their introductory disciplinary course. So uh, the historian in the group picked the research paper. Um, and the Victorian literature person picked um, a, an analysis paper. And instead of seeing that as one assignment uh, uh, in a course with many assignments, we asked them to see it as the, the sole assignment and to scaffold the entire course so that students could learn exactly the type of skills that they needed for these really high stakes moments in their freshman year in college. Um, the college professors teach these courses in the high schools. Uh, we also have a, a culinary uh, faculty member at Kingsborough, Kingsborough Community College who teaches um, students at Tilden High School in, in Brooklyn. And we really worked closely with uh, high school faculty and counselors to recruit students for these courses, students who were really community college bound, or in many cases had no college aspirations whatsoever. Um, there were lots of, there was a mix of on-site at the campus and on-site instruction at the high school in these courses. Um, I can't say that there's going to be sort of rapid expansion of this initiative because it's a lot of hard work, although the round that we're working on right now is taking the curriculum that about seven faculty have de designed and running professional development for select high school teachers around those, those curriculum. And it's a labor-intensive process, but what you get is a quality course, and students really do learn the explicit skills in high-stakes assignments that they would go into pretty cold if, if they didn't have this kind of course. And data, um, as soon as we get some, we'll put it up on our website. CUNY's has a, a significant, significant amount of data on our pre-college programs on our website. If you go to the CUNY portal and into the academic affairs area, you'll see in that first page there's a data book sec section. So we'll work on that. Thanks, I'm Mark, Nade <coughs> Mark Nadell. Um, I'd like you to elaborate on your experiences with mentoring um, of middle and high school kids, um, in particular by older college or graduate school students. And I'm wondering, is there any hard evidence about how effective that is? And also, if there's a shortage of mentors, have you considered speaking to colleges, asking them 
to ex adjust their affirmative action programs, to try and give a preference to applicants who are willing to do mentoring with middle or high school kids in schools that need, need this kind of program? <clears throat> um, with regards to mentoring, we really try to look at ways for the universities and the colleges to be involved in the school that will be aligned with their mission. Uh, for the for the school anyway. So many of them have uh, community service hours that students actually have to have before they graduate. Many of the colleges that we work with have that requirement. There are several courses many times that require uh, community service uh, learning pieces as well. And there are also several organizations on campus that have that as a focus and a goal um, for them as well. So we work with the college partners to sort of identify all those different pools of mentors and figure out ways that we can get them involved in the early college process. And so in some ways that develops into some one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Sometimes it develops into some group mentoring processes as well. Uh, it really depends on what the capability is. I know that there is uh, data from the Georgia Mentoring Partnership on uh, the quality and um, the results from a mentoring uh, program that I couldn't share with you right now, but I know that there is some data that suggests that that is a very powerful uh, piece for students' um, academic success. Um, as far as the policies, you know, that would be something that would have to be part of a broader discussion, and I know that, you know, Senator Obama has one of his uh, priorities is having individuals provide some type of community outreach and support um, that will allow them to receive some uh, funding for their college courses. So I know that it is something that's being discussed. Um, an incentive process I think would be wonderful um, to allow more people to provide more outreach to K-12 through mentoring. But there are a lot of different organizations that have that as a mission anyway. And so that to me is the power of that partnership is pulling as many of those organizations uh, together at the table to say this is a targeted population. We have the students here. If that is your goal, let's sit down and figure out how we can work with our students to help them succeed. President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> you said senator. I did not. <laughs> Can we strike that, please? <laughs> President Obama. Very proud of that fact. The woman in the middle. Robin Hickey, School Biz Match. What role, if any, do community partners like businesses, churches, community-based organizations play? in this great work? Uh, they're extremely important. Uh, I usually try to, either I attend or someone from my office attends the advisory committee meetings for our schools, and they may meet anywhere from monthly to quarterly. Uh, but we work with the schools on identifying those partners in the community that will have something to contribute to the process uh, or will also have something to benefit from the process of having a better educated group of students that would contribute to their local community. So in terms of those uh, schools that have career focuses, they really try to identify business partners that will help uh, the students gain experiences in that business, experiences in that career field, um, and they find different ways to do that, either through mentoring or providing the students internships, um, exposures to that career in different ways, and also aligning it with those majors that are available at the uh, college part 
partner as well. So um, the business community um, is a very important partner. As far as community organizations um, and churches as well, you know, many of our students um, in the underrepresented populations, um, the mega churches or even some of the smaller churches in the community serve quite a bit of those students in that population. So they help us with marketing when we're recruiting students. We actually use churches sometimes as a marketing tool to recruit students in that population if it's a church that's in a low-income community. And if they are part of the advisory board, then they feel very vested in that process. And they, and they are actually a word on the street in the community that sometimes the school system or the college cannot provide. Uh, many times students and their parents will listen to people that they trust that they're exposed to, that they have a sort of a track record in their community. And so if we provide those individuals with the message of college being attainable, affordable, that this is a program that's going to remove barriers for your children and provide them some wonderful supports, then it's important to have those people at the table to get the right message to students and the right information to them and point them in the right direction. Okay, I'd like to take two more questions. This woman here has been waiting for a while. Hi, I'm Shannon Looney with the Institute for Higher Education Policy. Um, I have a question about credit transfer. Um, I assume it's directly with the institution that the high school and the university are partnering with. Um, but I think a good example, when I saw that Carver High School is partnered with Georgia State, what about other institutions within Atlanta, like Clark Atlanta, Morehouse, Spelman, institutions that that's their largest pool, the demographic that they serve are substantially first generation and also low income. What kind of institutional collaborations are there with those institutions participating in early college and also who are not in terms of making kind of the transfer smooth and acceptable. The collaboration with other institutions is really going to vary uh, with each school. Um, I know that there are some of our schools that are using uh, tutors and mentors with um, different schools that are actually not even a part of the actual partnership, so they're expanding um, the capability to um, utilize different colleges and universities for that purpose. Um, with credit transfer, um, I think that's a uh, one of those things that's very difficult uh, across the country. Um, some of the schools have a very um, concrete articulation uh, agreement with regards to transfer of credit. University system institutions are very uh, good at accepting credits across the board uh, from all of our schools, and so that typically hasn't been an issue. Again, we have our first class of graduates this year, so we will be able to share some more data with you on that um, as far as how their credits have been accepted, not only with um, private institutions in the state but across the country. Most of those schools that you just mentioned um, are HBCUs and they are private institutions. Um, so typically um, there has not been an issue with the acceptability and transfer of credit. Um, but again, we will have our first class of students doing that um, this next year as well. But the, the, to answer the partnership question, they are reaching out to different schools that actually are not a part of that original partnership to see what services can be provided for the students. I, yeah, I guess I'll just add to that. Um, I think uh, ideally uh, these programs are situated in state policy contexts which have very clear um, expectations for articulation from two-year college courses into the four-year. That does, as Dawn mentioned, really you know, touch really the broad access public uh, post-secondary institutions, which is where most of the students are going to go. Um, now, part of the power of this is uh, compared to, you know, some other co early college types of strategies that don't, you know, like credit and escrow, for example, though that has merits. Um, 
is that students will earn college credit that is transcripted at the college, at the you know partnering college. So that is a guarantee. Now, to what degree it articulates, it varies from state to state. It's best in a state that has a you know a transfer uh, a transfer core of courses artic that's articulated, where the expectation is that those courses, they're very well defined. Sometimes they have, if you're in a state like Florida, a common course numbering system, so everyone knows what those courses look like. Uh, that's even the, the most ideal situation. Um, but, you know, I would um, just say that, that, unfortunately, that isn't the case nationally, that the, the, that kind of situation exists. So that's a, uh, a, a bit to work on. This would be a tiny lever to maybe push that conversation. Uh, you can imagine a lot of students coming out and doing more of this kind of activity and placing demands on some schools to accept their credits. And I, I want to piggyback on that as well. We do a lot of training for our counselors in early college because it, it's, a, it's not a typical counselor job that you would have at a regular comprehensive high school. And part of that is working with them to sort of look for those uh, schools that have, that our courses will transfer well. So they really try to be proactive about uh, looking at schools and letting students know that these are schools that we do have articulation agreements with. They will accept your courses, um, and these are the ones that we know about. But again, you know, that pool is very vast, uh, as Joel mentioned, with regards to out-of-state and private institutions um, for us. So it's one of those things that we're learning as we're going, but hopefully early college will be one of those things that will push that conversation. Okay, one final question on this side. I'm Katie Test. I'm with the Association of American Publishers Higher Education. How are you integrating technology like online graded homework, tutorial support, and placement technologies into your classrooms, and what sort of success have you seen with those? I, I'll start because it's, it's a, a limited amount, um, so I could cover it quickly. Um, we actually have a few distance learning courses uh, where, for instance, um, your college, which is located in, in Jamaica, Queens, if you know the area at all, will uh, provide a faculty member and then send a graduate student to the high school to be on the other end and uh, provide instruction through that type of course. I, I would hope we could expand it more, but it really, it's a matter of whether schools have the equipment and only a handful of schools have the equipment at this time. Um, we have a grant uh, out right now that we hope we get that will introduce self-regulated learning uh, that has been promoted and developed in our graduate uh, facility, uh, the CUNY Graduate Center, and we hope soon to be using a lot more computer-based self-regulated learning so students can learn to assess some of their work themselves, but it's still very limited, unfortunately. I would agree that it's, it's relatively limited as well. Um, we do utilize online courses for some of our high school courses because as you can imagine, every one of our students is not going to be prepared to take a full load of college courses their junior and senior year. But that challenge for the high school is providing a, uh, a classroom teacher 
and you don't have a full class of students because you have half of them taking college classes. So they do utilize online learning for some of their high school courses. Um, many of them have used some of the seed money to purchase laptops for students to check out, to take home for the, the ones who don't have internet access uh, at home to be able to uh, take the online courses as well. Uh, we do have one of our schools that's experimenting actually this year with an online college course. And so we'll see how that goes. I think the schools are a little bit more leery to do that than um, the high school courses but it's one of those things that I think we're going to learn from um, as the first class of students does it and we'll continue to use the data to utilize it and to see whether or not that's going to be a good option for our students. Yeah, I guess, oh, I'm go sorry. Ahead. No, Bob. go ahead. I would just add from a national perspective that it's quite consistent with the picture that Dawn and Tracy portrayed. Um, these are very, if you see them happening uh, at any substantial scale, they're really young efforts. So the biggest one I can think of is North Carolina, which was trying to offer some what they called virtual learn and earn uh, courses. And that mm -hmm. learn and earn is their name for their early college high schools. And uh, very new, very new. And actually, I think they discovered surprisingly hard to actually reach the populations they were trying to reach and, you know, trying to find out a little bit more about that. So I think there's a lot more to learn. I think it's really important to explore because especially for students in rural locales, this is an issue of access. Mm -hmm. So we need to know more about its, uh, you know, how to make it effective, I think is the question. But we're just tip of the iceberg. Great, thank you. So in closing, I'd just like to again thank Congressman Kildee and Senator Cole for their leadership on this important issue. I'd like to thank our wonderful panelists, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Um, and I hope you'll continue to work with us in supporting fast track options.